You are listening to a 14-week teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Acts. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that the Gospels were only the beginning of all Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth through the church, and this story is continuing today. This sermon series will address key themes in the book of Acts and connect them with our lives today. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We, we want to continue in this series in Acts, and uh, what we're looking at is these broad themes. So we've been looking at these big, broad themes in Acts that char- characterize the, um, the early church. And then last week, wanted to kind of dive into kind of a, a mini-series within a series and look at a couple uh, conversion stories. And we wanted to do that because, the, you know, there, there, there are many of us here, of course, who, who follow Jesus, love Jesus, have experienced what we would say is the new birth. Uh, but there's some of us haven't. Some of us are peeking over the fence trying to figure out who God is, what the church is all about. And, and I felt in, kind of inspired to, to talk about these conversion stories to, to let us all in on how this actually happens. And uh, for those who us to believe, to encourage us, but for those who don't believe, to, to let you know that, that, that God is interested and God is involved. And last week, we looked at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and kind of the big idea there is that God is, is, is absolutely after people. The, 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 the Spirit uh, is wanting to include those who feel on the outside. So we look at an Ethiopian eunuch who could not be more different than what was the norm of, of, of religion, or li- the norm of Christianity, I should say. And it was just primarily like middle-class Jewish. And here comes an Ethiopian eunuch that was uh, culturally different, sexu- se- socioeconomically different, sexually altered, uh, religiously different. Uh, just different in every way, thousand miles away, considered from the ends of the earth, this barbarian. I mean, so if there's ever, if there's ever a time where you thought like, well, I'm too far from, you know, I'm not the kind of person that Jesus is after. And, you know, I, I, you know God can never forgive me. Man, God, the Holy Spirit went, you know, spent overtime going after this guy and bringing him near, uh, uh, coming alongside Philip, coming alongside the Ethiopian eunuch, and there's this, bam, this big divine intervention. So last week was like, hey, there's not a kind of person that God is after, but he's, he's wishing that all come to repentance, and, and that he, there's this hyper-inclusiveness uh, found in God wanting to bring, so it's, it's, not, it's not these people are in and these people are out. No, God wants uh, someone from every tribe, every tongue, and um, that was the big idea there. And then this week, um, yeah, we're going to look at the conversion story of Paul, who was once Saul. And this is probably the most famous conversion story in all the Bible. And whereas last week, you had a guy who was lost and knew it. Uh, this guy was lost but didn't know it because he thought he was in. He thought he was in the middle. He thought he was, he was right in the middle of what God uh, wanted him to do. And he felt pretty good about himself. But he had this unexpected encounter uh, with Jesus on the road to D- Damascus. And, and just to say a little bit about conversion, because I know that word makes us nervous. I know it's like, you know, is that really, you know, should we, you know, should I be converted? Or should we tell people we should, they could, should be converted? And, you know, is that even the right thing to do? And it absolutely is the right thing. I mean, Jesus himself says this in Matthew eighteen three. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted... This, this has to happen. Other translations say it's unless you turn, unless you change, unless you believe differently and, and begin to act differently and live differently, unless you are converted and become like little children, which means you, you assume that you're not in charge there, uh, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3, Jesus says point blank, hey, you must be born again. 
We must be converted to, 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 to be a part of what God's a part of, the real God of the universe, the real God of the Bible. It, it takes conversion. So what, is it, what does it mean to be uh, converted? Well, I want to look at four elements in Paul's uh, conversion, uh, and I call them elements because there is no one way to become a Christian. Uh, last week, we, we looked at uh, 1 Samuel. We brought that scripture in. It said that the Lord devises ways. He devises many ways for people to come to know him. Some, some uh, conversions are very dramatic. I mean, they're just, you know, God just came in and like, wow, he just really, you know, night and day difference. And some are more of a process. It happens over time. Uh, you know, some are quiet, some are loud, some are uh, so there's all different kinds of, of stories. And so there, there are elements, though, of salvation. And so the four elements I want to kind of point out in this story today are, number one, if you're, so if you're taking notes, this is your cue. Uh, number one, pursuit. Number two, collision. Three, surrender. Four, recommissioned. Four elements of conversion. Pursuit. Collision. Surrender recommissioned. Um, the first one here that we see is pursuit. Um, every once in a while, I will accidentally watch a romantic comedy <laughs> or a, like a romantic drama accidentally. And, uh, and in all those stories, you've got this pursuer and the pursuee. Like the, the whole tension of the drama, the whole tension of that movie is, it, the, okay, there's one who wants to who see someone that they, they, they want to be with, uh, and, they're, and, they're, and they're making their attempts, and they're going after, they're going after, and then you got the pursuees, kind of like, I don't know, and, you know, they, like, I kind of, and I kind of don't, and, and so there's this tension, it's like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And, uh, and that's what the whole story is, and of course, they all end the same way, which is, you know, they, they, they somehow magically uh, come together, but there's a pursuer and a pursuee, and, and in, you know, in, in those comedies and those dramas, you know, it, it could be male or female. It's like, you know, there's, it's, there's a, you know, it can all be different, but there's those two elements. Well, with Jesus, there, there's a pursuit. But sometimes we get confused because we think that we are the ones that pursue God, but actually it's always he's the one who pursues us. In salvation, um, he's the pursuer. And we're the pursuing. And he is after us. Jesus straight up says in John 15, 16, You did not choose me. I chose you. This was my idea. In Revelation 3.21, very, very famous uh, passage, coffee cups, pictures, Jesus standing at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. What that verse doesn't say is, behold, you stand at the door and knock. And if you, loud, if you knock loud enough and if you're sincere enough and if you try really hard and you do your best, maybe, just maybe, I'll answer the door. That's not it at all. You haven't come to his house. He's come to your house. He's pursuing you. He's after you. And that's what we see here uh, in this passage. It's not like uh, Paul... Uh, by the way, I'm going to end up like interchanging Paul and Saul, and it's going to drive everybody crazy, including me. And, but, you know, he was Saul once, and now he's Paul. Saul, it wasn't like he was wanting, he was interested in the claims of Christianity. Can we agree on that? He wasn't like, hey, I'm, I'm going, he wasn't going to D- Damascus to find out about Christianity. He's going there to crush Christianity. He was not seeking 
He was being sought. He was not pursuing. He was being pursued. Um, just like we saw uh, in the um, uh, last week with the Ethiopian eunuch, you know how the spirit is just after the eunuch. I mean, just like, man, he was, he was trying, the spirit was trying so hard to make this happen and it happened. And, and in this story, we see the same thing. Jesus himself is coming to pursue. Um, as you know, Paul, we, we, we read about this story from the, the mouth of, of Luke who wrote Acts. And he, he tells of this, uh, how Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. But Paul refers back to his conversion a couple of different times in Acts. And in Acts 26, we get a piece of the story that we don't get in Acts 9, which I think is helpful for this point. In Acts 9, you know, uh, Jesus comes to Paul and says, you know, uh, excuse me, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And that's all we get in, in this passage. In, in Acts 26, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goad. Now, a goad is a sharp stick used to uh, prick, to point, to, to, to go at sheep. Uh, and it hurts. Um, a goad was used by a shepherd to, to poke sheep. Because sheep are, are not smart animals, right? So they, they I mean, they look cute, you know, if you don't get too close. And so they, but they're not smart. So if, if food is that way, they want to go that way, right? If safety is that way, they, they go that way. And so what a shepherd does, you know, a shepherd can't call the sheep because they don't respond to that. They can't, hey, come here, sheep. Come on. They, they don't respond to it. They can't be gentle about it. They got to stick them. They, they got to take a go. They got to stick them in. And they do this to, to bring them back in and, and honestly uh, save uh, their life. And so what, what Jesus is saying here to, to Paul is, I, I've been sticking you. You've been this dumb sheep that's like going in the completely wrong direction. You think you're honoring God, but you're dishonoring God. Uh, you think you're making the most of your life, but you're throwing your life away. And I've been sticking you. I've been trying to keep you from running off the cliff. I've been trying to keep you from running out in the middle of traffic. I've been sticking you. And isn't it, doesn't it hurt, Paul? Isn't it hard to resist this? This is Jesus pursuing Paul all along, not just on the Damascus road, but he comes to him in this, and says to him, hey, enough's enough already. I've been pursuing you. And this is, this is amazing. I think this is such a wonderful aspect of, of salvation that Jesus pursues us. And I, I think some of us can experience. I mean, how many of us would have experienced the, the, the conviction of God? In fact, that's probably one of the reasons why you're here. You're kind of in church and kind of come out of church. And what's all about? Well, you, you have a moment of conviction. And then you feel like you kind of like need to search some things out. And, you know, that wears off. So you go away. And then God pokes at you again. And you come back, and then you, you, you kind of go in and out and in and out. And I just believe that God would say to some of you, man, aren't you, this, are you tired of this game yet? you tired of me just coming and, and, and poking you, trying to get you? I love you. I, I want good things for you. Isn't it hard to kick against the goats? I, I've experienced this. I remember it, at least twice in college, I was running in the opposite direction of God. A couple moments where I, I remember specifically coming under uh, I would say now, I have the language to say this now, but I would say that I came under heavy conviction. I remember just saying, okay, tomorrow I'm just, I'm going to be different. And then, you know, you wake up tomorrow and, you know, the sky's blue and the birds are singing. You're like, ah, the heck with that. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep going. 
but God coming it faithfully and then one day dramatically just saying, hey, enough's enough. I've been pursuing you. And God is pursuing us. It's wonderful he pursues us. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Surprised by Joy. Read C.S. Lewis, particularly this book, especially on conversion. He says this, amiable agnostics will cheerfully talk about man's search for God. To me, it's, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Mice don't search for cats. Cats look for mice. And they find them. You didn't search God. He sought you. And he found you. Conversion isn't that you read a few good books and you have some quest for truth. That's not it at all. It's the fact that, that God in his love is, pursues you and he is pursuing you. That conviction you feel is the pursuit of God. And I just want a little bit of a side note in this story is I want to talk to the, those of us who believe because prayer is a part of that pursuit. Our prayer is a part of God's pursuit of others. Um, in, in Acts 7, I, I just saw this recently, but, you know, just a few chapters before this, uh, Saul is overseeing the murder of Stephen, right? You know, they're stoning him for, for being a Christian. And one of the things that Stephen prays as he's being pelted with rocks about to die, he says, Father, forgive these men. He learned that from Jesus, who on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's Stephen saying, forgive them. Save them. And the chief one, the one who is standing over this execution, two chapters later, as you turn the page, we find out the prayer was answered. God had forgiven them. Hey, prayer is powerful. It's effective. I know my parents prayed for me, prayed for me over, you know, in the crib, praying for me. God, save him, use him. Praying for me as I grew, grew older. And then as I got in college and, you know, went in completely opposite direction. Praying for me. Hey, prayer works. Our prayer for those who don't know Jesus, our friends, relatives, co-workers that don't know Jesus, is part of the pursuit of Jesus. We don't have to stand idly by, but man, what's be given to prayer in that uh, so there's firstly pursuit. Secondly, we see here collision. In verse 3, Saul is knocked to the ground, but by what? Well, you could say the voice of God. He was knocked down by, you know, this light. But I think more than that, it was a collision with the truth. Uh, it was a head-on collision with the truth. Uh, a, a God he didn't create. A, a, a God he didn't make up. A God that had his own reality. And this is what Paul encountered. Prior to that, uh, Paul related to a, a God that he made up in his own mind based upon his own per- preferences and, and desires, a God that made sense to him, uh, a, God, um, a God who wasn't real and who couldn't knock him down. But now he met a God who could knock him down, a God who can contradict him. And part of conversion is that, yeah, God pursues you, and then there's a collision with a God that you didn't think was God but actually the real God. And that's what Paul encountered. Uh, that's why he says in verse five, who are you, Lord? I mean, this is a guy who zealously studied the scriptures and thought he knew God. And he, he comes on the Damascus road and he realized, I don't know God. Who are you? Who are you, God? You see, he, before this encounter, uh, Paul thought that God would have never come a human being. God would never become a human being. God would never get rid of the temple. God would never get rid of sacrifices. And so since God would never be this way, Christians are wrong. 
hey, we modern people are the same way. Before you encountered Jesus, maybe you thought the same thing. Maybe you thought, you know, this is what I think God is. God is this way. God is that way. Christians have to be wrong. It's a God that we make up in our own head. It may not be the severe God that Paul related to, but, you know, if you were to ask the average person, hey, you know, do you believe in God? They'd probably say, yeah, you know, probably, maybe. And then they'd back it up with something like that. Well, if there is a God, he's a, he's a God of love. He's a God who accepts everyone. He's a God who doesn't judge. Um, you know, he, he doesn't uh, tell me really how to live. You know, he just kind of leaves me alone and, and lets me do what I want to do. And man, that's a God uh, that uh, that's a God we make up. That's a God based upon our imagination. And that's a God who will never con- contradict us. And maybe you think, well, what's the problem with that? We, the, the thing that you and I need, we need a God who can contradict us. Because if we don't if, if, we, if all we have is this, is this construction in our head of what we think God is, but we don't actually encounter the real God, we'll never, if God can't contradict you, he can never help you. He can never lift you up when you fall. Uh, he, he can never transform you. He can never change you because he's not greater than you. More than anything, we need a, a God who's bigger than our reality. Um, I, I talk to lots of people um, who, who may, you know, they have this kind of vague uh, belief in God, but it, it'd be a, a, a construction in their own head. And, and they, may, they may, you know, say things like, you know, w- when they go through experiences of like, well, you know, I, I just don't feel loved. Uh, I feel like my life doesn't count. They, they have feelings of inadequacy. I'm like, well, you know, is God helping? They're like, no, not really. And I'll tell you why not really. Because God is not bigger than their heart. One of my favorite verses um, in the Bible, First John three twenty says this: For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. When you fail, when you fail to live up to your own standards, much less God's. When you feel unloved, um, when you feel like you're an outcast, God comes in and says, "No, you're wrong." There is no condemnation in Christ. Uh, you are infinitely loved and you're, you have eternal purpose. But God can't say that to you if God's not greater than you. He can't help you. He can't, he can't build you up um, unless he's above you, unless he can contradict you, in, in, unless, he can, uh, in, unless you, you say to him, hey, I, you know, I'm bowing my knee to you. I, you, know, you know, I know that I'm opposed to your will, but I'm going to, I'm going to submit to your will. When you encounter the real God, he can knock you down. He can, he can confront you. And then you learn to say, God, God I'm going to accept you. You know, everything you say, I, I'm not quite sure about, but I'm going to accept you. And when, and when you do that, when, when you don't feel loved, he can come and tell you that you are. And you'll believe him. Because he, he's greater than you. He's a God who can tell you that you're beautiful when you don't feel beautiful. He can tell you that you're infinitely valuable when you don't feel valuable. You and I need a God who's not just a product of our needs and wants, but who's real, who can contradict us, who can knock us down. And that's what Paul encountered. And I encountered this in my college apartment, uh, apartment 16 years ago. I mean, to that point, I had a God that didn't speak unless spoken to. Wouldn't have said it that way. And he took orders from me. I didn't take orders from him. He, he was a God that I made up. But what I needed is I needed to be 
contradicted. In order to be really helped, I need to be contradicted. And part of conversion is a collision with the truth. And that's what Paul experiences, and, that, and that's what we need to experience. So you've got um, pursuit, you have collision, and then you have surrender. Um, Jesus pursues Saul. His reality collides with Saul. But st- Saul still has a decision to make. He, he had to come to this place of surrender. I mean, he, God had him surrounded. I mean, I, I like this word surrender uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. But it you know, kind of reminds me of like, you know, kind of the Old West. And, and there may be this gunslinger, arrogant guy who, who thinks he can take on the army. But there's a moment where the army has him surrounded. And guns are pointing at him. And he has a choice, you know, death or surrender. And, you know, God surrounds us. He doesn't surround us with guns. He surrounds us with his love. He's not wanting to take us off and cart us off and put us on death row. He wants to come to us and say, hey, I was on death row for you. In fact, I went to the cross and I died for you. I, I want to bring you into life. But there is a sense to where we, we, we find ourselves caught. Paul on the Damascus Road, he found himself uh, caught. He found himself, okay, God's got me cornered now. But he still had to make the decision. Do I, do I keep going or do I surrender? We know that he had resisted the poking. You know, that he'd re- he was trying to, to knock away the goad. That Jesus pursuing him. But he had to, he had to surrender. And Paul here uh, surrenders. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think, um, why we raise hands uh, you know, maybe you're new here and think, oh, why do you guys raise hands? Well, this is, this is a sign of surrender, right? You know, he's like, hey, I give up. And what we want to say in, in conversion is like, there, there's a sense to where when, when you get converted, you, that's it, you say, I give up. Um, you know, my, well, my kids were younger, and if you have kids, you've experienced this, is that, um, you know, they'll run off into the street. And for me to save them, they need to give up. I grab a hold of them. And they need, to, they need to trust me. They need to surrender to me. Because they need to see that I'm out for their good. They need, to, they need to trust that for them to be saved. And for us, we need to surrender to God. C.S. Lewis says this in his, uh, that same book, Sur- Surprised by jo- Joy. He says, before God closed in on me, which I love that line. I love, that's a great, really characterized how God pursues. Before God closed in on me, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. Who can relate to that? I just want God to leave me alone. I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want want God to interfere with me. I had wanted to call my soul my own. Uh, In my moment of conversion, I felt myself being given a free choice. I could open the door or shut it. I chose to open. Total surrender. I gave in and admitted that God was God. That night, I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. For some of you, I mean, God has been after you. Jesus has been after you. And he's been chasing after you. And you've been resisting it. Surrender is such a relief. Surrender is like, surrender is not not to be taken on a a heavy burden, but he wants to relieve your burden. He wants to put an end to your deadly doing, is that one him says. He wants, to, he wants to bring life to you. So he's pursued you. Even though you've not wanted anything to do with him, he's pursued you. 
those thoughts of like, hey, I, I better get my life together, those are, those are convictions by the Holy Spirit. But the, the, the answer that you have of I need to do better isn't what you need to do. What you need to do is surrender. You're trying, and, and that's the problem, is you need to stop trying. You need to give up. Conversion as Jesus pursues you. You collide with the real God, and then there's surrender. And finally, there's being recommissioned. Uh, there's really only one way to know if you experience conversion, and that is how it's changed your life. The proof's in the pudding, so to speak. And, uh, and that's what we see here in Paul. Uh, he was recommissioned to live a different life. Um, he used to be the one giving the orders, and now he's taking orders. So, you know, Jesus is like, hey, go do this, go do that. And he's like, yes, sir, that's what I'll do. And uh, you're recommissioned. There's a sense that you're recommissioned. And, the, and there's three ways that I, I always want to say briefly um, that Paul is recommissioned that I want to call us to in our recommissioning. Number one is you see I- intimacy. He's recommissioned into intimacy. Um, in, in verse 12, I believe it is, in, in chapter 9, uh, God says to Ananias, hey, go find Paul. He's praying. And uh, now that may seem like, well, that, what's the big deal with that? You know, he's a Pharisee. He, he said many prayers. In fact, Jesus said, you know, the Pharisees in their many prayers. But there's a difference between saying your prayers and praying. Praying involves conversation, relationship. There's, this, there's, this, there's something happening here. In fact, Jesus says, don't, don't be like the Pharisees and their many prayers. So it's not that we, we engage in these religious activities and these duties. You know, I, I have this duty to prayer. I have this duty to do, you know, to give and to good needs and all that. He's like, no, no, it's, it's, it's a relationship. So, so Paul, up to this point, had never experienced the intimacy of God. In all of his zeal, in all of his trying, in all of his pursuit, he'd never experienced. And now he was finally experiencing intimacy. He was experiencing relationship. And that's in our recommissioning, we move from rules into relationship. And as I was preparing for this, I just was kind of startled by something in Deuteronomy that I felt to share almost like prophetically to some of us here today. And to help us understand that, in Hebrews twelve eighteen, it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and tempest. This is talking about Mount Sinai. That you've not, this Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai um, was the, where God's presence was, and nobody was allowed there. And, you know, even, it even says here in verse 20, For they not, could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so anything that came into contact with this Mount Sinai. It was just kind of heavy-handed rule-giving. It's where the Ten Commandments came from. And it was just, you know, you've got to be holy. You've got to do everything just right, or you can't can't be in my presence. And what he's saying is, like, you've not come to this, that kind of mountain. You've come to Mount Zion, to the mountain of the living God, this new Jerusalem. That on one hand, it's right that, yeah, you can't approach a holy God, on your own. You need the blood of the lamb. Thank you, Jesus. But so you, the, in Deuteronomy, God speaks to the same people who were used to Mount Sinai, who were used to obeying the rules, who are used to trying to do everything right. And it was something that Hebrews says that they couldn't really endure. And the word of the Lord to, this, to these people 
It says in verse 6, Deuteronomy 1, 6, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, which Horeb is Mount Sinai, okay? This is the word of the Lord to them. I think this is the word of the Lord to some of us. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn. I think for some of you, for some of us, you've been at this rule-keeping mountain way too long. It's not what God's called you to. You haven't been called to Mount Sinai. You've been called to Mount Zion. God wants to bring you into relationship. He wants to bring you into intimacy. Part of the great news of the conversion isn't that you have to keep more rules. It's that Jesus kept all the rules for you. And he wants to draw you in. I just think in a loving way, God just wants to say to you, enough. You've been here too long. Maybe it's been your whole Christian life. You've just lived in trying to keep the rules. I think God wants to say enough already. You've been here long enough. It's time to move on. So you see intimacy in this recommissioning. Secondly, you see sacrifice. God tells Ananias, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for me. Now, that wasn't a threat, right? Man, I'm going to get him back for all the things that he did. He's going to suffer. He's going to pay big time. That wasn't it at all. Actually, what he was calling him into was a privilege. And Paul saw it that way later. If you read his writings, particularly in Colossians, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I get to suffer with Jesus. I get to sacrifice. And and brothers and sisters, when we have this true heart change, this true uh, conversion, is that we want to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his rights who laid down his life, who sacrificed for us. See, Paul, and maybe you think this way too, Paul thought that a strong God wants to bless a strong people. A strong God is finding people who can obey the rules and be strong. But the gospel is a strong God became weak so that those who know they're weak can be made strong. And so when, when we say, when we, when we understand that when this dynamic uh, comes to our heart, and Paul got that on, the, on this Damascus road, when we, when we take that in, we're like, that's the gospel. That Jesus, Jesus sacrificed for me. And so Paul's like, you're telling me I get to do what Jesus did? I get to lay down my life just as Jesus laid down his life? I get to sacrifice just as Jesus sacrificed? That's a, that's a joy. I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in prison. I rejoice in my pain. I rejoice in my sorrow. Because I get to, he's counted me worthy to suffer with him. Now we may never suffer physically like that. Martyrdom, persecution, beatings, those kinds of things. But we will sacrifice. We're called to a life of sacrifice. We'll sacrifice our time. We'll sacrifice our money. We'll sacrifice our ambitions, our life. It will be a death to self. That's part of the conversion. If you've been in church for 20 years and you haven't grown in a desire to sacrifice, maybe you haven't, haven't been converted. This life change, this recommissioning means this heart for sacrifice. And growing in that and, and being willing to lay down our lives. And then thirdly, um, it's a recommissioning into community. I think one of the most amazing things about this passage, actually, I haven't even mentioned yet. Um, and I'll, I'll only do it in 90 seconds. 
Um, maybe. First John 3 says, well, I'll say this first. Let me t- say what it says in Acts. Is that Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I would have expected the next line to say something like, well, hold on a second. I'm not persecuting you. You're up there and I'm going to Damascus to persecute Christians. How can I persecute you if you're in heaven? Jesus says, tomato, tomato. Same thing. There's a direct correlation, Jesus is saying. I, he's saying to Paul, and Paul got this instantly. He wrote some of the most amazing thing on community. He says, how you treat me, excuse me, how you treat your brothers and sisters, how you treat the church is the same way you treat me. I see no difference in it. And there's two amazing analogies that we see in the scripture that help us put this to reality. One is um, uh, we're the body of Christ. So you come and someone punches you in the gut, you know, knocks the wind out of you. You're like, what gives, man? Why'd you hit me? He's like, oh, I didn't hit you. I just hit your body. <laughs> no, no, no. You hit me, right? You, you hit my body. You hit me. Another helpful analogy is um, we are, which makes half of us feel uncomfortable, is that we are the bride of Christ. And, um, and so you've got, you've got who say, he says, hey, I am, you know, I'm the husband and, and you're my bride. And in any semi-functional marriage, I mean, my marriage, um, you know, if you said, came up to me and said, hey, you know what, I think you're great. I want to hang out with you some more, but... Man, I hate your wife. Can't stand her, actually. Um, what I wouldn't say is, hi, no, no, we're, hey, as long as we're cool, I, you know, you can think whatever you want about my wife. <laughs> we, no, you can't say that, right? And we're laughing when we shouldn't be laughing because that's how we think about it. How I treat Jesus is differently than what I think of the church. Jesus says, if you press against the church, you press against me. I'll say it this way. Hey, casual toward the church? Jesus says, you're casual toward me. Take it or leave the church? You can take or leave me. Love and build the church. Support the church. Love and build me. Support me. Give to the church, you give to me. Serve the church, you serve me. He takes it very, very personally, how you treat the church. It's the same thing to him. Just as a body is to your head, just as a wife is to her husband. First John 3 says, how can you say that you don't love How can you say that you love God when you don't love your brother? How can you say that you love God that you don't see when you don't love your brother that you do see? The quick answer there is you can't. God takes it very, very personally. So one of the things that happens when you are converted is your attitude toward the church completely changes. I mean, before I became a Christian, I mean, to be honest with you, the biggest reason, the biggest thing that kept me from following Jesus was I could not imagine myself being a church person. 
That was probably it. And, but when I became, when God changed all that, it was like, instead of like wanting to keep an arm's length of the church, I wanted to be all in with the church. And I think that's what happens in conversion, is that you're, you're recommissioned to intimacy, you're recommissioned to sacrifice, and you're recommissioned to others.